Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Does user-centered design at the forefront of ubiquitous computing, big data, and dynamic visualization excite you? As the leader in predictive marketing analytics, according to Forrester Research, MarketShare is a fast-growing startup building a world-class user experience team of interaction designers, front-end developers, visualization experts, and user researchers. If you have a strong background in application design and user experience, submit your resume at marketshare.com careers. That's marketshare.com careers. Hi, thanks for joining UX Radio. Today I'm talking with Dan Klein and Bob Royce, who are both friends and co-founders of The Understanding Group, an information architecture consulting practice they launched in 2011. They started Tug with the goal of reinvigorating the practice of IA while having fun and doing good. Dan is an IA and Bob is an entrepreneur, which makes them a great team. But what is an information architect? Let's hear from Dan. Just reviewing uh, Richard Saul-Werman's talk at the IA Summit in Phoenix in 2010, and he talked about uh, calling himself an information architect, and unlike almost every other information architect that uh, has talked about their title, he said he picked that because it was an opportunity to explain it to somebody, that if he called himself something else then he wouldn't have had the chance to have a conversation. And that was what he was interested in. So if you're doing some, some work that you think is fascinating, but that just doesn't lend itself, if you're not interested in people just sort of nodding and saying, oh, yeah, you're a plumber, great. Information architect can, it has to be a door opener because people don't think it could just be what those words mean, one plus one. And, uh, but now they kind of do. But it's still a conversation. It's always, at least right now, it's always a conversation unless somebody has dug into it and and they think they know it well. The things they're going to need us to do with them are a lot harder than a two-syllable, three-syllable Greek-rooted word Mm -hmm. that is in the dictionary and that's easy to know what it means. So if, if, if they can't go with us into what an ontology is, how are they ever going to go with us into the complexity and contradiction of their all their broken junk. Right. It's a, it's a little bit of an intellectual discovery phase. Yeah, well, cuz maybe cuz we are afraid that uh, we're making people feel less smart than they ought to be. Um, and maybe that's uh, where the sense of we shouldn't be using big words like that. It's interesting to me I'm pretty sure Richard Saul Werman would not I don't know. I was about to say, I'm pretty sure Richard Saul Worman wouldn't be okay with using ontology and taxonomy to describe this stuff because my sense is that he prefers simpler language. And he also thinks it's important, if not essential, to speak up if you don't understand something. If they don't know what those words mean, they wouldn't feel comfortable asking you more about it. Maybe there's an argument to not use those words if people don't think that they have the permission to engage with you to explain it more. Like like they're yeah. supposed to already know these things. Because, no, 
It's okay to not know things. Well, I think it's how do you make them comfortable to open up to the discussion and say, let's all, right. you know, talk about this and, and what does this really mean? And, and invite them to be vulnerable. Right. Maybe it's more you shouldn't start with that word as yes. the first one out of your mouth. Uh, in Don't order to have them. some sort of a rapport where you could be vulnerable perhaps enough to admit that you don't yet understand some of this terminology and some of these concepts. Bob, maybe you can share what instigated uh, the passion to begin Tug. Well, I've had an interest in information architecture since the early 90s and I was trying to figure out what to do to go back to school. I've been a teacher and a graphic designer and taught desktop publishing and there was this digital library program started at University of Michigan in 1993 and um, it seemed to be the kind of combination of computing and education and visual arts that I was looking for and got there and saw my friend Lou Rosenfeld was there and took classes around that took classes from Joe Janes and, and he and Lou then started Argus a few, couple years later and Peter was, was in that mix, didn't know Peter as well. And so I was very, I, I liked information architecture. <clears throat> I had done graphic design and done some layout types of stuff, editor my yearbook in high school, so I kind of could relate to the, the need to take what a librarian knew how to do and put it on this large amount of information. When you have a lot of information, it's hard. And at the same time, I was working for a software company that did custom software development that used object technology and object-oriented methods to do that. So I was kind of looking at it through the lens of, of objects and object modeling. And it was clear at the time that computer scientists didn't understand the value that librarians brought to it, right? The internet came out and the general sense from computer scientists was, well, this is easy. Just put a relational database on it and you're done. Why do you need all this other stuff? And then people started bringing out the papers from IBM about, you know, when you have over a million records, it doesn't work. And everybody, you, you do a search, you get 30,000 results that are all equally valid. It's not very helpful to you. And so all these techniques and tools. So I followed that, but I left it, dropped out of that program and stayed with the software company throughout the, the rest of the 90s. And so saw Lou and he built this thing and it looked great and thought it was a great, great concept, was always very interested in it, used it in building websites and stuff and so then fast forward to uh, 2006 and uh, I meet Dan and he's this information architect and the company I was consulting for asked me to recruit him and uh, he turned me down <laughs> went to Grand Rapids to, to pursue a different a different path but we stayed it friends. It should be noted that Bob <laughs> advised me to turn him down uh, when I told Bob about the opportunity that I had in Grand Rapids, as I have observed and I love about how he's put together, the best argument wins. And when he assessed what he had been asked to offer me relative to his sense of what this other thing was, against his own interest, he had to point at the this. And that stuck with me. So even though we weren't all that deeply acquainted at that point, and I was moving to the other side of the state... I was still teaching in Ann Arbor once a week, and to and fro, and because we're connected in the world now in so many different ways, you know, a text here, a tweet there, an email, hey Bob, I'm going to be in town, do you want to go to the 
Rathskeller at the Heidelberg after class with me and my students and hang out. And from doing that over the course of like a year and a half or so, uh, he started putting bugs in my ear of uh, starting a company. And uh, my first response was, well, I know this other guy who you might want to do. Like, like I, I just had no, I'd always worked for people and uh, had no sense of it. But as we continued this conversation, it made increasingly more and more sense that uh, we have such complementary skill sets and we have such a uh, delight in and passion for this information architecture thing. Um, plus he had a selective set of it, I would say at the time, and didn't, wasn't as aware as he would soon become of the UX, the hand-wringing about the defining the damn thing and, and all the sort of internecine squabbles. Uh, he'd seen it for a long, long time and was seeing the parts of it that were closest to what I loved and cared about. And so after forming our partnership and starting a company, uh, the first thing we really did together was go to Denver to the IA Summit. And... Uh, that was a surprising, uh, uh, Bob, after that experience of going to that summit, Bob had to voice to me a little bit of, hey, are we doing the wrong thing here? Um, because, and you can pick up the story, but Jess McMullen, who was one of the conference chairs that year, there was a, was it like a flex track session maybe? It was maybe? a planning session. It was, you know, planning for next year's summit. And I thought, oh, I'll go check that out, you know? And I walk in, right as Jess is saying, maybe we should change the name to the UX Summit. And there was this kind of passion back and forth. And nobody was saying, oh, no, IA is a thing and we need to keep it. it, it the, the, the argument that won the day was, well, there's already too much UX stuff out there. This is your, the name is your differentiator. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> what, what happened to information architecture? Oh, what? yeah, about that. <laughs> I was going to tell you. Uh, yeah. It's not as popular. It's like less trendy somehow. Uh, the pendulum swung. I mean, when when Lou and Peter and Joe were doing their thing, it was pretty obvious. A lot of information. You want to get it through this screen. Somebody needs to order it. Librarians have thousands of years of history on how you structure information. We have something to say. Great. Today, there, people are trying to do so many things that... Uh, some of which don't need as much information architecture as others, right? Depending on what you're trying to do and depending on where the core problems are. And, and so my contention is that starting around 2000, you know, and, and for that whole decade, the core issues around the web and what was happening was, how do I turn it into software? And Lou and Peter's first book made it very clear, information architecture is not software. It's not graphic design, right? And so there was this kind of fine line. So they basically opted, without realizing it perhaps, kind of opted themselves out of what was going to be the next big wave on the web, which is, I want to do software on the web. And it wasn't a foregone conclusion that you would, right? Just like in, in 1996, um, seven, when we started getting courted, a company I was with by this guy who wanted to do e-commerce, who wanted to do e-commerce end-to-end, it was not obvious then that e-commerce was going to succeed, right? Ah, Amazon, yeah, okay, maybe for books, but nobody would buy a car or a, a, a washing machine or, or a house pants. or right or clothing over yeah. the web. There's no way. That was the that was a pretty firm belief. 
And likewise, as people started to try to use this, you know, HTTP protocol for software, it was so hamstrung that it was easy to see that, no, this isn't a medium for software. <clears throat> well, of course, it, it became a medium for software and kind of merged in with everything in mobile and phones and everything. And so all of that's very important. So all the interaction design and the user experience things around enabling this tool to be used as software are essential. But it doesn't mean that you don't have information, a lot of it, that you want to convey. And in fact, as the software got more powerful and you had more and more information that you wanted to actually shove through the screen, and so information architecture is becoming, I think, incredibly much more important than it was when it started because people have more information, it's more complex, and they want to provide it to more people, a much wider variety of people. It's not just researchers, it's not just brochureware, it's everybody within your value chain, you would love to just, you know, to simplify and give them the means to asynchronously communicate with you or synchronously or whatever. I mean, the, the, the range of uses that get overloaded on this beg for better structure and organization. I wonder, Places. because you get a lot of clients who uh, just say, redesign our site. But when you step back and, and look at what is the purpose, like why? Why, are, why do you have the site to begin with? And then you guys talk, I know, about the what before the how. You know, when you're looking at all the different information they have on there, and if you're naturally kind of good at categorizing information, how do you explain to someone how information architecture takes that further than just categorizing information? Well, one of the things would be to try to uh, get the word just out of there because categorization is one of the most powerful technologies that we have as uh, human beings. So to elevate the conversation as Andy Fitzgerald did today uh, at the IA Summit about categorization and taxonomy as placemaking. And rhetoric. And, and yeah, you're making arguments about the, the thing. And if you want to provide cohesion to uh, one of the first truly cross-channel experiences that I had with software and technology is with Bank of America. Uh, I drew the short straw <clears throat> and am the treasurer of the IA Institute. Uh, and uh, so that caused me to have to use a business banking portal from Bank of America. That's what the Institute uses. And that system, if I only have my computer, that system doesn't work. Uh, they've now made it so it's it, it's it can be single channel now if you have a the handheld devices are powerful enough and ubiquitous enough now. But two years ago, two and a half years ago, I started to try to do the things you need to do as a treasurer: make sure that checks aren't bouncing and make sure vendors are being paid. And when I would authorize a, an electronic payment, it would verify that by sending a text message to my phone. And in, if I didn't have the phone, if the phone battery was dead, if I couldn't find the phone, like it it wouldn't work. And uh, the way that complexity now is, and uh, to borrow from Andrea's uh, presentation this morning, the idea that information is smeared across these contexts, it's not clean. The conversation about just categorization could be flipped and say, uh, in the poster I presented last night, I used the visualization of uh, a set of gears. And the littlest gear uh, is the one that does the most work, 
And the littlest gear is the one that decides, in a lot of ways, what all the other gears can be. And if the little gear is right, you can have all manner of other gears. And categorization, the particular meaning, which is categorization, that's the little wheel. And a lot of people may not see the little wheel, but if the little wheel is wrong, the rest of it will break. So analogies, metaphors, uh, bringing a bicycle to a client, you know, there may be ways that we can try to, maybe you've had this in your work, I've heard people say, uh, hey, can you do the navigation today for the, for the website redesign? Because that's the information architecture part is just doing the navigation and picking some words. Or, or even worse, I heard a presenter say, we figured out the navigation kind of, but then marketing might, might weigh in during sort of implementation and change, and change some of these categories to fit what they're doing in marketing. And no. <laughs> well, and, no. And, and what they don't realize is what they're saying is, hey, can you please explain to the 100,000 people that are coming to our site where to go today? Right? Just all 100,000 of them just come up with the right labels that all of them will be able to figure it out. Right. right. We're going to spend eight weeks on this project, and this afternoon you're going to figure that piece out. Well, their motivation is different, right? Marketing wants you to buy it, and the information architect wants you to find it. Mm, I would even push back on that and really? say uh, if the business has been systematic with what it wants, what buying means the special kind of buying that is appropriate for our, for Trader Joe's buying is different than at REI, is different at Lumber Liquidators. So if we could get the business to, uh, to get specific about what it expects out of the project, then the information architects can work with that. And findability is always a concern, but it can't be the only one. You could put findability on one end of a continuum and uh, serendipity on the other end of a continuum. If you mean by findability, the ability if I have a, if I'm looking for plaid pants that I could laser beam my way to plaid pants. But what if I came looking for a tie and serendipity led me to the pants? And our world is, is complex to the point where we can't just have one. We can't be either findable or serendipitous. It, it must be, uh, I talk about this, I borrow a term from Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown. They talk about the conjunctive yet, that it is about findability, yet it allows for serendipity. And, and that navigating that, having the business be able to come to consensus on, on that continuum, where does this app, website, SharePoint thing, whatever, where does it, what's it pointing at? What's... Well, and our job is to align with our customer, the marketer in this case, right? So if findability is the way that the marketer achieves their goal, then yes, the IA's job is to help findability. That may not always be the case, right? I mean, narrowing selection for audiences sometimes improves purchase, right? So, you know, Trader Joe's is kind of famous as having a very limited, there's no more than three varieties of any given thing in Trader Joe's because they found that too much choice actually quells, squashes people's purchase impulse sometimes. And so there may be situations where the marketer's like, okay, if, if we've structured the site well, then a given person of the audience may be taken to a particular place where the gob isn't 
to make them find everything that they have, but to actually present them the selection that the marketer wants them to choose from. Right? And, and, and you can create structures to guide all of that. And I've not looked because Grand Rapids is not fortunate enough to have a Trader Joe's. But I would, if I had to guess, I would say that Trader Joe's website is not as Trader Joe'sy as it ought to be, based on the business decisions that it makes about assortment. I suspect they use an e-commerce platform that has a series of sort of standard interfaces, which are built for sifting through lists. And Bob's looking at their site on his phone right now. Uh, I'd love to be wrong about this. I would love to know that there is, because what I'm interested in, what I think uh, one of the things I'm really excited about with this field is tightening the connections between architectural form and the sense of place or meaning of what is being offered. No, they're pretty, at least they're mobile. They're, They're not trying to sell everything. Yeah, this looks great. So yeah, good job Trader Joe's products. What's new? But the key is, is designing the structure to facilitate the relationship, right? One of the things we talk about is as a difference between a IA as a little piece of user experience versus IA as a, as a counterpart to user experience is we see that there's users and they and the audience have, has a need and you need to create a good experience for them, but there's the business that wants to have the relationship with those users, right, on the other side of it. And so part of an information architect's job is to figure out, well, what is that relationship you want to have and what are the information structures that you have that will feed into that relationship and how do I expose those in a way that your customers will actually relate to and understand and get to because your organization is way more complex than you want them than they have time to understand. So you have to filter it and kind of translate it between that. Um, I really like to you know, listen to Andrew Hinton's talk and, and Jorge's talk as well. You know, the, the, the concept of meaning, you're talking the Reframe IA, you know, a big part of what we are trying to do is structure meaning or facilitate meaning. Because I think Jorge is right to say we don't create meaning, we facilitate things that people will derive meaning from and everybody's going to come and get different meaning from the site but that's a very difficult task right it's at the essence of human communication and with computers you don't really have a dialogue you want to try to create a dialogue but it's not the same right if I use a word with you and you don't know what it means you can often because it's in the midst of a dialogue either infer meaning to it from other things or simply ask me what did you mean when I go to a website and I get to a word or a label and I don't know what it means, I, I, I can try using the search perhaps, but my means of dialogue are way limited. So you have to talk in much simpler sentences on websites. Jorge's statement was pretty bold today, which is that information architecture is the only field that is focused on the structural integrity of meaning. And... Uh, Somebody, I, I tweeted that out and somebody replied like, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I like it. Uh, that's a pretty awesome whether, idea. Whether, whether they're the only ones that do it or not, right. it's clearly something that we need to do. And we are the discipline that tries to do that in the space of facilitating digital communication. So back to Trader Joe's, I noticed that they don't, they don't do e-commerce. They, make you make, they let you make a shopping list, but they don't sell products online. And so the... 
the question, uh, if you're listening, Trader Joe's, if you want to make an e-commerce site, if you want to sell stuff, give us a call. That's, that site seems like, you know, in a 10-second heuristic analysis, it seems like it, it's pretty good for making shopping lists, but that is a different activity than shopping. And uh, the idea that structural form can have a tighter or looser uh, relationship with what the business is about. Those same architects I uh, referred to earlier, uh, Robert Venturi and his wife, Denise Scott Brown, in 1972, they wrote a book called Learning from Las Vegas, and in that book, they present sort of the range of what's possible for tying structure to meaning. And at one end of the range, they call uh, Denise, actually, people always just say Venturi. They leave her out. They are a team. And she said, well, if you must know, I came up with ducks and decorated sheds. So, but they, they co-authored this. But anyway, at one end of the range is ducks, which they have a picture of a building that is shaped like a duck that sells duck eggs. And then at the other end of the range, they call it a decorated shed, which is a, a really general or even a vernacular thrown together structure where the structure doesn't mean anything, but it can be decorated on its surfaces and, and in, enriched with, with interesting kinds of meanings on the surface. But their argument was, as architects, we ought not be making ducks much at all because these buildings, because architecture, their sense of architecture which not all contemporary architects share, is that one of the properties of architecture is permanence, or at least uh, durability. And that you would be doing a disservice to your client, even if they're selling duck eggs, because their business may need to change over time. They may, like most people, die someday. Uh, you know, there are all these things where the building most. could continue to be adapted forward. And so what I think is fascinating that we don't know yet is... And the physics of that, in when we're talking about atoms, it makes sense. But we're not talking about atoms. And the structures that we make are not as expensive, necessarily. And that could be a, a whole podcast in and of itself. But long story short is I am curious to know if the duck and decorated shed thing in the built environment is not necessarily or even actually true in digital environments. And if we can go tighter and tighter and tighter with structures, tying them ever more tightly to meaning, we could make things be even better. If the situation is one where we have command of what we mean. Well, in making part of the architectural decisions are making decisions within the systems. And so one of the things Jorge brought up this morning that was, I thought, so useful is, to, is just to remind us that we're not just architecting a web page, right, or even a website, but often an ecosystem of sites that live within, right, much more complex systems. And some of those ought to perhaps be ducks, right, at certain levels, right, in certain rooms, certain areas, and some ought to be decorated sheds because we know that will change and be reused. And, and so making those decisions is challenging. It's not just a surface kind of thing. It is a structural, strategic type of thing that you need to really understand the business and really understand the users before you can figure out what are the structures that are going to facilitate those kinds of relationships. We've had a, uh, we're a two-year-old company and we, because information architecture isn't widely understood, uh, we try to bring it as much as we can to as many different contexts as we can because we're scrappy and we have cash flow and we have employees and things. And so we work through agencies sometimes even in less than ideal setups. So once or twice, perhaps, I won't uh, 
there was at least once, let's say, there was a time working with an agency where we had no direct access to the client. They didn't have the resources to get the IA done, which we could also talk about that, turn of phrase. So they hired us. And I took what little they had for me to understand everything about this really quick project. And I showed them sketches of structurally how I would address what they had said was going on uh, to do the IA. And the wireframe and sketch and blob diagram review that I did with them to explain these are the structures that I think address what you're trying to accomplish. Their critique of that review, the things they asked me to change, were the places where I was most deeply baking meaning into the structure, into the... I was making ducks uh, at key points in that experience, and I think this is really important what Bob said. Uh, one thing can have ducks and sheds inside of it. There were points in this where I thought I could make it be really good, and those were the things the designers wanted to take out. And I have a theory about this, which is that many of those designers on the, in this particular case have also worked in print, have worked in atoms, and they might believe that it's more expensive, it's more risky to put meaning in the structure because it has to change later. It's easier to change the image on the surface than to change some sort of deep, meaningful structure. Or even if they were purely digital designers, the way that they understand the making of meaning is through images. And images have a different mechanics to them when you're making meaning with images than with language. And so it was the places where I was building semantic structures that were baking the, lang the meaning deeply into the thing, that they're backing off. And what they said was, we will address that later in design. And so if you think of the requirements that they expressed in that uh, scenario, and one of them was a basketball, and one of them was a golf ball, and one of them was a tennis ball, and one of them was a whale, a blue whale. What they were asking me to do is make a table that all of those things could sit on. If you think of requirements having a weight, uh, and our structures have to support weight, they said make a generalized structure. They said make a shed, not even a decorated shed. Make a shed and then we'll decorate it. And what they didn't realize or they didn't want me to do was to build them a structure that was really strong under the whale part and appropriately light and manipulable with the smaller objects. They wanted a table, not a uh, weird Rube Goldberg machine that addresses all these different kinds of meanings really specifically. You know, is it because of the atoms that we think structure, putting meaning in structure is too risky and too expensive? Because what if we have to change it? Or is it because designers make meaning with pictures and they are less comfortable having the meaning made with language? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> what do you think? I think that if the structures are going to be easier and easier to change in the future, I mean, even with WYSIWYG and WordPress or whatever, maybe the fear of changing the structure will reduce and and then risk will be perceived differently. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. And I think the object technology that Bob's company was doing at that time, where you could have meaning described in such a robust way that you actually could change things significantly 
because what what we mean by uh, we did some work for for a big travel company. What what do we mean by package? What do we mean by ticket? What do we mean by lodging? What do we mean by once that is systematic, you can build all kinds of structures to express it, but you're not changing that 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 ontology. Right. Back to the, the the word that must not be named. The <laughs> once you've got that systematized. I think it might not be as scary or as expensive to do uh, wonderful feats of structural design to make things really meaningful and good. And that that doesn't have to just be hitting things with a pretty stick right. to get it to what it's kind of supposed to mean. And so how do you build a solid foundation and allow the flexibility of changing it? Uh, you spend more money than you ever thought you would on something you never heard before which is ontology, taxonomy, information architecture, object modeling. Um, well, and in fact, part of it, the reason to invest in doing it is so that, because it will change, right? It's not a matter, right? It's not a matter of it's not going to change. It right. will change. Right. Um, the question is, do you have to throw it all out and start again, or are you modifying and tweaking it, right? And if you get the structures plan them out and do the work to understand the organization and to, 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 to map it out, then when it come, a new thing comes along, you figure out where it fits in. You don't have to just throw it all out again and start from scratch and, uh, and get the, the structures right, yeah. or at least supportable. We just don't have uh, Lou Rosenfeld at World IA Day in New York this year said, uh, and actually it's very similar to something that Mr. Werman said in Phoenix. Uh, we're at minute one of day one of a new era. Uh, and so our, we don't have any familiarity with um, the types of order and the types of structure that we need to have to address this complexity and contradiction of these products and services that we're making. But that's okay because this is minute one of day one of year one of a new time. The idea of a conjunctive order that allows some of it to be nailed down, some of it to be a mess, some of it to be uh, about customer acquisition, yet some of it is really about customer retention to be able to do contradictory, complex things. Librarians, I sometimes laugh when I go to the library and I have such a frustrating time finding anything in a library and I'm a trained librarian. The types of orders that librarians have, in my generation at least, I was in library school in 1996 um, in Detroit at Wayne State University. The types of order that they trained us to utilize and to be masters of were brittle orders based on atoms that were about where you put a thing and it couldn't be in two places. Ultimately, there was a thing where it went. Libraries work great for librarians. Those brittle systems of uh, exactly where everything goes, every time I ask a librarian, they can find it because they've mastered this one way. But uh, for people to use these things, there have to be ways. Right. And ways and ways and ways. And not just any old way. You know, Andreas's uh, sort of critique of modernism is my way and then postmodernism is screw ways. What's a way? It doesn't matter. And then uh, I differ with him a little bit. 
he wants this to be the uh, pseudo-modern approach, is how he calls it, where uh, there are places that would be good to put things. There, there are orders that would be good, uh, and there is meaning. Uh, I like, instead of inventing uh, something, I like to just retrieve what Venturi uh, and Scott Brown call the conjunctive order of yet. Uh, modernism is must. Uh, postmodernism is meh. And uh, what we need now is yet, an order that allows for a yet. So where do you guys see Ted going in the next few years? We will continue to build out place for information architecture, figure out what that means, you know, and, and how that carves out and where the boundaries are. We see it as, you know, if you look at a continuum of, we are part of a value chain of creating things, right? And part of the challenge of running Tug is we aren't the beginning or the end of the value chain. We are in the middle. And so, you know, somewhere people have strategy and they come up with strategy. And so we need to beef up our interface to that strategy aspect of it. And then they get to implementation. And then even within the implementation, where the industry seems to be today, which is butt up against user experience and what, how the interactions occur and this debate between interaction design and, and, and so forth. We don't do design, right? We don't manage pixels. We don't do visual design at all. But we have talked about getting into information design, right? Infographics, creating meaning visually, right? As a precursor to this, the systems of interaction around that. And then on the other end, Information architects have a lot to offer into the whole computer science software development space. It's even harder because whereas the um, visual designers and the user experience people don't want to talk about ontology and big words, the computer scientists are all actually quite smart in that type of thing. They're not smart, creative, artistic. They are smart algorithms, computation, they, a lot of them know what ontologies are and they've tried to program on them and they've done, you know, semantic webs and all this kind of stuff. And yet they come out of a discipline in which at the root of information science is Claude Shannon and his statement that meaning is irrelevant. Meaning, you know, meaning and information don't correlate in traditional information science, right? It, it's simply... A difference between two communications is what makes information, regardless of what it means. And you see that in the software space, right? They treat meaning, I don't want to say trivially, but um, they often think, just like the, the, the issue of the computer science area and software developers often commonly underestimate the complexity of language and meaning, right? And so you get Alan Cooper writing The Inmates Running the Asylum, because computer scientists are very intelligent people, but they're not good proxies for users. Not that users aren't intelligent, but they're just not the same, right? They're intelligent in different ways. They come out with different things. And so they need the translation. They need people that are willing to, to figure out how to translate between the business systems that they're understanding in, in excruciating detail and coming up with all the process flows and all the things to make the guts of a piece of software work and then translate that. Well, we talked about information design. On the you know the, the the computational side of things, maybe a better way to say it than I said before is the complexity of software systems that people are writing, and the amount of information that corporations are gathering. Went to Avi's talk on adaptive things based on sensors. Right, you get sensing around what's what's in the world. You, your software knows whether it's light or whether it's dark. Well, corporations have 
thousands and thousands of sensors now in their value chain, whether it's all the manufacturing data that they're getting or the logistics or what's happening within their, their processes. As we've digitized everything, our ability to sense all of that has increased. All of that needs to be distilled and managed and create meaning out of that. Sometimes so you can go all the way through to the customer, which is actually one of the hardest things to do. But even for all the people that work for the companies, all the information systems that are in there are increasingly complex. And I think there's a big place for information architects to help them do that in a way that enables their employees to be more productive and then pass that all the way through to their customers. And the more information they create, the more information there needs to be architected. And so I think I see us moving more into that, not to the point where we actually write code, but to where we're doing modeling. And we already do for customers. Um, we have an analyst that comes in and helps map business processes and figures out what is implicit to help make it explicit so that we can figure out how you then translate that to somebody on a web interface. Dan began practicing IA in 1997 and developed information architecture, e-commerce strategy and design for well-known brands such as American Girl, Harley-Davidson, and Herman Miller. Dan also teaches graduate students IA at the University of Michigan and serves on the board of the Information Architecture Institute. Bob started his career as an educator and graphic designer and later moved into business and management roles. He witnessed the birth of IA as a graduate student in the first digital library program, along with Lou Rosenfeld and Peter Morville. As an educator, executive, and consultant for the past 25 years, Bob enjoys solving business problems by leveraging information technology. The Understanding Group is an information architecture consulting practice based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, with an office in Grand Rapids and information architects both in Los Angeles and Philadelphia. The goal of the company is to use information architecture to make things be good. They do this today by helping companies create delightful user experiences by bringing order to complex information spaces. From websites to enterprise data stores, Tug helps people find what they're looking for and accomplish their goals by architecting intuitive information structures. The idea of service is at the heart of Tug. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more.